Good evening, all you ghouls and goblins. Kristen and Relly are back with Season 4, Episode 13 of Demented and Unusual. And tonight we will be covering Dennis Lynn Raider, also known as BTK or the BTK Killer. He was born March 9th, 1945, and has a confirmed victim count of 10. Wow. That's more than the fingers I got on one hand. So Dennis was born in Kansas to Dorothea May Cook and William Elvin Ryder. He was the oldest of four sons. His brothers were named Paul, Bill, and Jeff. William was in the Marine Corps and later worked for an electric utility company. Dorothea was a bookkeeper for a supermarket. They grew up in Wichita. Both parents worked long hours and didn't pay much attention to the kids. Dennis later said that he felt ignored by his mother in particular and that he resented her for it. He attended Riverview Elementary School and joined the Boy Scouts as a youth. From a young age, Dennis had sadistic sexual fantasies about torturing, quote, trapped and helpless women. Dennis would later tell police it started in grade school. Annette Funicello was my favorite fantasy hit target when she was on the Mouseketeers. She was a dream girl for a lot of guys. I had these imaginary stories of how I was going to get her, kidnap her, and do sexual things to her in California. Only California. Very specific. <laughs> he also exhibited zoo sadism by torturing, killing, and hanging small animals. His other fetishes included voyeurism, autoerotic asphyxiation, and cross-dressing. He would often spy on his female neighbors while dressed in women's clothing, including panties, that he had stolen. And he would masturbate with ropes or other bindings around his arms and neck. Dennis graduated from Wichita Heights High School in 1963. His friends described him as a quiet and polite young man who preferred to keep to himself. He was not a very social person, he had no interests in the music of the times, and had no sense of humor, according to one of his friends. But he tended to be studious and focused, so he had that going for him, I guess. Yeah, um, not for long. He was also described as a person who chose their words before speaking and who would give you his full attention. In the fall of 1965, he enrolled in Kansas Wesleyan College in Salina. He completed two semesters and then dropped out. It is said that his grades were mediocre. <laughs> the summer of 1966, Dennis joined the U.S. Air Force and was sent to none other than San Antonio's own Lackland Air Force Base. Whoop, whoop. Yay. After that, he spent time at Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas, doing technical training. He was also stationed in Mobile, Alabama, Okinawa, Japan, and Tokyo, Japan. Dennis claims to have spent time in Korea, Greece, and Turkey as well. He attained the rank of sergeant and worked in the installation of antenna equipment. He received the Air Force Good Conduct Medal, the Small, <laughs> Small Arms Expert Marksmanship Ribbon, and the National Defense Service Medal. And I'm just picturing him with, like, tiny arms. Like, like little T-Rex arms. arms. Yeah. He can't even, like, reach to get the ribbon. <laughs> <laughs> In 
he was discharged in 1970 and spent two more years in the reserves. Dennis married Paula Dietz on May 22nd, 1971. They had two children together, Brian, born in 1975, and Carrie, born in 1978. In 1972, he started at Butler County Community College and earned his associates in electronics in 1973. He was a poor student, even by his own description. You know, C minus to D student. Uh, he couldn't spell, and he may have had a learning disability. He went on to Wichita State University and graduated in 1979 with a Bachelor of Science in Administration of Justice. Dennis held several jobs during this time. He worked briefly in the meat department of a supermarket, <laughs> an assembler for the Coleman Company, and Kessna Aircraft Manufacturer. For a brief period, he was unemployed, and his wife was working at a VA hospital in Wichita. She didn't like driving in snow and ice, so Dennis would sometimes drive her to and from work. He said he enjoyed, quote, trolling, basically just driving or walking around certain areas where there would be a lot of women just to observe them. He would find a good prospect and retreat into his fantasy realm of bondage, torture, and death. Just to imagine what he would do to, her, to the person. Creepy. In 1974, he began working at ADT Security Services. He worked there until 1988. He installed security alarms, and in many cases, the homeowners raised concerns about the BTK killings. Hmm. Wow. It's creepy. I think they stroked his eagle. Eagle? <laughs> ego. Ego. I did. I said eagle, y'all. They were stroking his eagle. <laughs> Anyways. In May 1991, Raider became a dog catcher and compliance officer in Park City. This is when his neighbors started calling him overzealous and extremely strict. Whereas before, he was just kind of like, not laid back, but just, you know, like kind of go with the flow but he just kind of turned and was just like uh it said that he took special pleasure in bullying and harassing single women so they definitely saw like a change in him during this time one woman even complained that dennis killed her dog for no reason which is not funny <laughs> i'm just thinking about the stroke his eagle thing it's like those people who say i digest instead of i digress and bone apple teeth instead bone of apple bone teeth. teeth i just imagine that's such a murk i think to do i'm stroking my eagle tonight <laughs> eating my damn freedom fries y'all fuck yeah murka bitch. oh shit okay so during one of his trolling missions he noticed a new Hispanic family that had moved into 803 North Edgemore. And we're giving you these, like, addresses. We specifically found them. Because um, I think it's really cool to, like, Google image search them and, like, see the actual house. I don't know. Maybe I'm creepy. Well, I know I'm creepy, but I don't know. Maybe it's just me. He spied with his little eye, <laughs> Julie Otero, who was 33, and her daughter, daughter, and her daughter, Josephine, who was 11. He had a thing for Hispanic women and admired their beauty and dark hair. He stalked the Otero house for some time just to get their routine down. He watched when people left, when they returned, their daily schedules. You get the drift. Just 
<laughs> on January 15th. 1974, <laughs> um, he gained his hit kit, consisting of a gun, cords, knives, and various tools for breaking and entering. He had a habit of nicknaming his home victims, or PJs, similar to the way military operations are codenamed. This one was Project Little Mex. Wow. Not racist at all. No. It's only racist if you don't like them. I'm just kidding. Around 8 a.m., he went to the Otero house, snuck into the yard, and cut the phone line. He hesitated at the back door, (laughs) but ultimately decided to barge in. Ow. That's gonna hurt. The husband, Joe, age 38, was still at home, as were Julie, Josephine, Joey, age 9, and a rather vicious dog. Dennis ordered Joey at gunpoint to put the dog in the backyard. He then told the family that he was a wanted criminal and needed money, food, and a car to escape. At first, Joe asked him if this was some kind of joke set up by his brother-in-law. That's a... That's going a little far for a joke. Yeah. (laughs) He got them all into the bedroom and tied them up. Dennis had put a bag over Joe's head, but Joe fought hard. He tore holes in the bag, so Dennis had to use a rope to strangle him. He attempted to manually strangle Julie, but it took considerably longer and much more effort than it did in the movies. (laughs) Julie passed out but came to after some time. She begged Dennis not to kill the children and told him, God have mercy on your soul. The second strangulation attempt worked. Joey was the next victim. He took Joey to his bedroom and killed him by strangulation and suffocation. He apparently rolled off the bed and died face down on his own bedroom floor. Dennis said he brought a chair into the bedroom and sat there to watch the boy die. Josephine was the final victim. The first attempt at strangulation failed, and she came to, as we said earlier, and Dennis was then forced to walk her down to the basement. He put a noose around her neck and told her she would be going to heaven to join the others. He asked her for a camera, but she said they didn't have one. Josie was hanged from a sewer pipe in the basement, partially disrobed. Dennis then masturbated over her bare legs, leaving some semen on the pipe behind her. Dennis stayed to tidy up a bit and collect his things. He took Joe's watch and a small radio. He left in their Oldsmobile station wagon. On taking the watch, Dennis said, I needed one, so I took it. Runs good. (laughs) He drove to a nearby supermarket and abandoned the car. A lady actually saw him getting out of the car and said he was shaking like a leaf. He tossed the keys, the car keys, onto the roof of the supermarket and walked to his own car. When Dennis realized his knife was missing, he claimed that he drove back to the Otero house, parked his car in their garage, and retrieved the knife from the yard. The other Otero children, Charlie, 15, Daniel, 14, and Carmen, 13, had already left for school before Dennis arrived. They came home from school and found their family. Dennis wrote the first of many letters that would be released to news and media sources. They were riddled with misspelled words and poor grammar. Of the Otero murders, he wrote, When this monster enter my brain, I will never know. 
but it's here to stay. Society can be thankful that there are ways for people like me to relieve myself at time by daydreams of some victim being tortured and being mine. It's a big complicated game, my friend, of the monster. Play putting victim's number down. Follow them. Checking up on them, waiting in the dark. Waiting. Waiting. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. He's already chosen his next victim. It was signed, yours truly guilty. Guiltily. Guiltily. <laughs> and added that his code name would be BTK for bind, torture, kill. I could not. <sighs> what? Just all the errors in that was just. It ugh. was painful to write. It was hurting my brain. It, yes. It was painful to say as well. In April of 1974, he began stalking 21-year-old Catherine Bright. On April 4th, he broke into her home at 2317 East 13th Street. I don't know why that was such a mouthful for me. (laughs) Via the back porch door and hid in a bedroom. He called this one Project Lights Out. (laughs) Around 2 p.m., Catherine arrived home. She was accompanied by her brother, Kevin, who was 19 years old at the time. Dennis came out of the bedroom, pointing a gun at them. He gave them the same spiel about being a wanted criminal, needing a car, and needing money. He forced the two into a bedroom where he tied up Catherine. He tried to tie Kevin up in a different room, but he hadn't brought his best hit kit that day. So he had to improvise with materials he found in the home. Kevin worked his way loose and got into a vicious fight with Dennis. He almost succeeded in taking the gun from him. Dennis regained control and fired a shot that hit Kevin in the right upper lip. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Kevin was still fighting, though, but got shot a second time right in the forehead. Kevin appeared to be dead or dying, so Dennis went back to Catherine. Catherine also put up a fight. He originally planned to strangle her, but switched to stabbing her as it was quicker. She was stabbed three times in the back and lower abdomen. Meanwhile, Kevin regained his composure and ran out of the house screaming for help. Dennis had to make a hasty exit, running from the scene on foot. He ran many blocks to where his car was parked and drove off. Catherine died in the hospital a few hours later, and Kevin was left in critical condition with a head wound, but ultimately survived. Kevin would later describe Dennis as, quote, an average-sized guy, bushy mustache, and psychotic eyes. Between 1975 and 1976, it's not known, or Dennis is not known to have committed any crimes. Between his full schedule at ADT, going to night school, and having a young child, he just didn't have time. But in between the murders, Dennis would take pictures of himself wearing women's clothes and a female mask while bound. I highly recommend y'all Google search that because it's fucking creepy. I was about to say, oh man, I can't wait to see these. Yeah, they're fucking creepy. I should hang them up in my hallway. The bathroom. The bathroom has a theme. Anyways. Okay. Uh, I was just thinking, you know. He later admitted. He later admitted (laughs) that he was pretending to be his victims as a part of his sexual fantasy. Um, But he did a really good job of keeping his sexual activity and fetishes hidden. 
because most of the community um, saw him as normal, polite, and well-mannered. In March of 1977, Dennis decided it was time for another kill. Yay! He had been trolling a particular neighborhood and had some women in mind. Uh, he met a woman named Cheryl in a bar and found her quite interesting. Uh, he found out where she lived and decided it was definitely a go. On March 19, 1977, Dennis went to her house, but no one was home. He went to another home in the neighborhood that he had been watching, but no one was there either. Did you say 19? It's 17. Oh, I said 19? I think so. Oh. On March 17th, he went to her house and no one was home. So he went trolling on foot and encountered a five-year-old boy named Steve. Oh, no. Dennis pulled out a photo of his own wife and son and asked Steve if he knew who they were. Steve said no, proceeded back to his house. Dennis knocked on the door of his house, which was 1311 South Hydraulic, <laughs> um, and Steve answered. He claimed to be an official person, possibly a detective, to gain entry into the home. Steve was there with his eight-year-old brother and four-year-old sister. Dennis entered, turned off the TV, and lowered the blinds. The mother, Shirley Vian, 24, emerged from the bathroom in a bathrobe, <laughs> demanding to know what was going on. At gunpoint, Dennis ordered all the children into the bathroom, where he blocked them in. He led Shirley to believe that he was going to tie her up and rape her. Shirley was ill that day and threw up shortly after seeing Dennis. <laughs> he got her a glass of water and allowed her to have a smoke to calm down. I thought that was just so, like... I don't know. Here he is, like, a cold-blooded killer, but he was like, oh, you need to calm down. Like, you know, you threw up here. Here's a glass of water. I think it's just part of the mind games for him. <laughs> Probably. It's still really creepy, though. <laughs> After she calmed down, Dennis tied her up. He then strangled her to death with a cord around her neck. He left semen on panties that were found next to the body. Panties. Dennis was gone before the children could break out of the bathroom and call for help. He later stated that a ringing telephone unnerved him and caused him to leave before he could kill the children. In December 1977, Dennis became fixated on 25-year-old Nancy Fox. He would stalk her from her house at 843 South Pershing and all the way to her workplace. On December 8th, he broke into her duplex via a rear bedroom window, cut the phone lines before entering, and called this Project Foxtail. <laughs> he waited for her to return home from her evening job at a jewelry store. The initial confrontation took place in the kitchen, presumably at gunpoint, where he told her that he had a sexual issue and needed to tie her up to rape her. She did not fight back. Nancy was told to partially disrobe in the bathroom, then ordered to the bedroom. Dennis tied her to the bed and undressed himself. At one point, he told Nancy who he really was, making it clear that he was the person who killed the Oteros. At first, I thought it said Oreos. Not gonna lie. <laughs> He killed the Oreos? <laughs> he proceeded to strangle her to death with a ligature, and semen was left on a nightgown found next to the body. He's just leaving his fucking baby gravy everywhere. 
The next morning, Dennis went to work as usual. After leaving the office in the company van, he stopped at a phone booth a couple blocks down the street. He dialed police dispatch and said, yes, you will find a home aside at 843 <laughs> South Pershing. Nancy Fox, that is correct, and left the receiver dangling. Police rushed to the address and found Nancy's lifeless body on the bed. A tape recording of the call was eventually played repeatedly over and over in the Wichita media, but no one recognized Dennis's voice. You know, I was thinking back to when he had that violent fight. Mm-hmm. How did he explain that to his wife? Like, I, don't know. I would have been like, what the fuck happened to you? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Well, maybe they didn't leave like facial marks. I imagine that she had to have seen him at some point, like yeah. disrobed, you know? That's true. I don't know. <sighs> she just wasn't paying attention. In early 1978, Dennis sent another letter to TV station KAKE in Wichita, claiming responsibility for the murders of the Oteros, Bright, Viant, and Fox. He demanded media attention in the letter, and it was finally announced that Wichita did indeed have a serial killer at large. Dennis enclosed a poem titled, Oh, Death to Nancy. And it was basically a parody of the lyrics to Oh Death, which is an American folk song. In the letter, he claimed to be driven to kill by Factor X, which said which he said was a supernatural element that also motivated Jack the Ripper, Son of Sam, and the Hillside Strangler. How many people do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Do the cops think all these deaths are not related? Golly gee. Yes, the MO is different in each, but look, a pattern is developing. He also said, You don't understand these things because you're not under the influence of Factor X. The same thing that made Son of Sam, Jack the Ripper, Harvey Glattman, Boston Strangler, Dr. H. H. Holmes, Pantyhose Strangler of Florida, Hillside Strangler, Ted of the West Coast, and many more infamous characters killed, which seems senseless, but we cannot help it. There is no help, no cure, except death or being caught and put away. P.S. How about some names for me? It's time. Seven down and many more to go. I like the following. How about you? The BTK Strangler, Wichita Strangler, Poetic Strangler, The Bondage Strangler or Psycho, The Wichita Hangman, The Wichita Executioner, or The Asphyxiator. This guy. (laughs) In April 1979, he became obsessed with 63-year-old Anna Williams. He broke into her home at 615 South Pinecrest and waited for hours for her to come home. She escaped death by returning home much later than expected. This made Dennis absolutely livid. He took a a few small items and left. In June 1979, Anna received a package in the mail. It was a package. In the package was a poem entitled, Oh, Anna, Why Didn't You Appear? (laughs) A drawing of what Dennis had intended to do to her and a few of the things he had stolen were in the package. Anna was terrified and moved far away. The next day, a similar package arrived at Cake TV. 
already this cocky. <laughs> like the boo variety. <laughs> Bukake TV studios in Wichita. All the cocky you need. God. <laughs> it contained a poem, a drawing of a nude and bound woman, a scarf, and two plastic clips, which were stolen from Anna's house. The poem and the drawing were copies of what Anna had received. The early 1980s were fairly quiet for Dennis. He became more active in his church, which was um, a Christ Lutheran church. And he eventually became elected president of the church council. The irony. Oh, the irony. He was also a Cub Scout leader for his son. Brian would go on to attain the status of Eagle Scout. While Dennis never utilized his degree in administration of justice, it is said that he was that he was occasionally involved in reserve office programs as a volunteer. Maureen Hedge was a 53-year-old widow who lived on the same street as the Raiders. She lived at 6254 Independence. During their walks, Dennis and Paula would often wave to Maureen, who shared Dennis's love of gardening. Aww. On the weekend of April 27th, 1985, Dennis was at a Boy Scout campout just outside of Wichita. He left camp complaining of a headache. He said he needed to go into town to buy something for it. He parked his car by a bowling alley in the city and bought himself a beer. He swished it around in his mouth and spit it out, purposely getting some on his clothes. He wanted it to smell like he'd been drinking. He then called a cab, pretending to be drunk, and told the driver to take him to a park in Park City. He told the cab driver that he wanted to just walk it off before returning home. But the park just so happened to be right up against the hedge property. Dennis saw Maureen's car in the carport and assumed she was home. He cut the phone line and quietly pried open a rear door using a screwdriver. He called this Project Cookie. (laughs) No one was home, but a car soon pulled up, so Dennis hid in a bedroom closet. Maureen walked in with a friend, Gerald Porter. Gerald left around 1 a.m., and Dennis waited for Maureen to fall asleep. He crept out of the closet, turned on the bedroom light, and pounced on Maureen in bed. I don't know why I said it like that. (laughs) He started choking her to death, but this wasn't the end of his fantasy, though. He then dragged her body and the bedding to her car and put her in her own trunk. Okay. He drove directly to his church. As he was a trusted member of the church, he had keys. So he dragged her body under some trees and entered through the basement. Dennis thought ahead and stored black plastic sheets and other materials at the church in preparation for the murder. He taped the plastic over the windows so no one could see inside and photographed Marine in various bondage positions. Once he was finished, he returned her body to the car trunk and took it off. And took off. (laughs) After he stroked his eagle. Shut up. (laughs) I mean, he does live on independence. Yeah. Once he was finished, he re- Oh, god damn it. He found a good dumping spot in a ditch along the dirt road. Several miles outside of Park City. He left some knotted pantyhose by the body- which were apparently used for some purpose during the night. He returned to where he left his car. He cleaned Marine's car, wiped it down for prints, and then drove back to scout camp. He wasn't 
connected to this until 20 years later. When Maureen didn't show up for work at the coffee shop at Wesley Medical Center, her son-in-law was contacted. She wasn't found until May 5th. So, I like, nobody at, like, the Eagle Scout or whatever the fuck Scout, nobody was just like, where were you all this time? No. Because he was like, yeah, I have a headache. I'm going to go buy something for it. And I know, but, like, I, I mean, <sighs> people just, be I wanna, too tr- they're too yeah. trusting. Like, I want to say he did it, like, towards the evening, like, the night. So, I guess maybe everyone was asleep and just didn't notice he didn't come back until late. late. I don't know. In September 1986, Dennis found his next project. Vicky Weggerly? Weggerly? A 28-year-old mother of two. He would walk by her house and hear her playing piano. So he called her Project Piano. On September 16th, sometime after 10 a.m., he went to her house. He was dressed as a telephone repairman and even had a hard hat. He managed to get Vicky to allow him in. He checked the phone line and even used an improvised testing gadget. Dennis then informed her that she was going to be tied up. He forced her into a bedroom and attempted to tie her up. She fought back and scratched him in the process. Dennis regained the upper hand, tied her with ropes, and strangled her to death using a pantyhose. Afterwards, he photographed the dying body in a few poses and then left her in the car. Earlier, she had warned Dennis that her husband would be coming home soon. Bill, in fact, drove past his wife's car going in the opposite direction away from the house. He couldn't identify the driver, but said that it was not Vicky. The two-year-old son, Brandon, was in the living room unattended during the killing. Bill finally found Vicky's body and called paramedics. She was rushed to the hospital, but died a short time later. Dennis drove around while disposing of evidence, then returned to park Vicky's car a few blocks from their home. He was never suspected of this crime. In fact, police suspected the husband. The dark cloud of suspicion hung over Bill for the next 18 years. That sucks. Yeah. Not only did you just lose your wife, but now, like, police, they didn't have enough evidence to, like, bring him in. But, like, everybody thought he did it. Like, in 1988, the Fager family, Fager family, was was murdered in Wichita. This included Father Philip and his two daughters, Sherry and Kelly. They were 10 and 16. I said that very awkwardly. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) Awkward. The father had been shot. Sherry was bound and drowned in the hot tub. Kelly was strangled and placed in the hot tub roughly eight hours after Sherry. Bill Butterworth was arrested. (laughs) but later acquitted due to the lack of physical evidence. Mrs. Fager received a letter, supposedly from BTK. Along with the letter was a poem titled, Oh God, He Put Kelly Sherry in the Tub. His damn poems, man. It stated that he didn't commit the crime, but admired the work of the man who did. 17 years later, it was confirmed that Dennis wrote the letter when they found a copy in his stash. Police believed that Butterworth was guilty and Dennis didn't commit these murders. January of 1991, Dennis focused his attentions on 62-year-old Dolores Davis, a.k.a. Project Dogside. 
he was older now and decided to focus on victims that were older and therefore more, more vulnerable. His encounters with younger ladies became difficult when they fought back, and men were just obstacles in the way of his intended conquests. Dolores lived approximately a mile and a half away from Dennis at 6327 North Hillside. He stalked her for a bit to confirm that she was, in fact, a single woman living alone. And she also happened to live in an area without any close neighbors, so that kind of helped, too. January 19th, Dennis was away for yet another weekend on a scout outing. He again invented another excuse to slip away for the evening. He parked his car at the Baptist Church in Park City and walked to the Davis residence. When he got there, Dolores was still awake, reading in bed. So he waited outside for her to go to sleep. Side note, it was below freezing that night, so this was some dedication. Once <laughs> she had gone to sleep, he took a cement block and rammed the sliding glass door at the rear of the house. She came out of the bedroom thinking someone had driven into her house. Dennis gave his famous line of being a vagrant in need of food, money, and a car, and he told her that he had to tie her up. There are indications from the crime scene, crime scene that there was a brief struggle. Dennis succeeded in tying her up in the bedroom. Um, it's unclear how long Dennis was there, but Dolores ruined the fun by telling him that she was expecting someone home at any minute. So, you know, game over, he strangled her. He then dragged her body outside and put it in the trunk of her car. He drove a short distance and left the body and other evidence under some trees. He then drove her car back to her house, wiped it down for prints, and tossed the keys on the roof. Dennis then walked back to his car and returned to the body. He drove around for a bit more and settled on a remote spot underneath a bridge in northern Sedwick County as the dumping spot. He left, changed back into his scout uniform, and returned to camp. The next night, he left camp again and returned to the dumping spot. He posed and photographed the body. He also took a photo of himself in a female mask, buried in the grave meant for Dolores. She wasn't found until February 1st. That's insane. Yeah. And you can actually find the picture of him wearing a mask buried in the grave. It's really fucking creepy. Most of the pictures that you find of him are creepy. Let's just be honest. <laughs> so is he like into Shibari? I don't know. He might be. I think I saw a movie where he was like doing like light shibari kind of like bindings, but I don't know yeah. if that was like accurate because the more I read about him, the more it seems inaccurate. Inaccurate. I know he definitely like he liked doing different bindings and knots and everything. So maybe he was into it without like knowing what it was called. Yeah. Kind of his own version of it. Yeah. By 2004, the investigation into the BTK killer was considered a cold case. Robert Beattie, a Wichita lawyer, was concerned that the case was being all but forgotten. He decided to write a book about the investigation. January 2004 was the 30th anniversary of the Otero murders. The Wichita Eagle ran an article about the crime and the BTK killer. Beatty also announced the publication of his new book. These events definitely captured Dennis's attention. 
He got mad that someone else would be telling his story. He fumed over what to do for the next few months. My zipper down? Oh, no. March 17, <laughs> 2004. Dennis mailed an envelope to the Wichita Eagle using the name Bill Thomas Kilman. BTK. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Gay. The letter stated that he murdered Vicky... Weagerly? 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 What? I don't know. Vicky W. Vicky W. And enclosed pictures of the crime scene and a photocopy of her driver's license, which, by the way, was stolen at the time of the murder. Remember, Vicky was not originally considered a BTK victim. So this was all like, oh my god. Ah. Ah. What's the opposite of stroking my eagle? Shut up. You're strangling my ostrich. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. DNA was collected from underneath her fingernails and tested against hundreds of men. He signed it with the, the BTK symbol used in all of his previous letters. Side note. If y'all haven't seen it, it's really awesome. So it's like a B, and then he puts two dots in it to look like um, boobies. Boobies. Yeah. And then it's the T is the backbone of the B and then the K. But I just thought it was funny that he made the Bs look like boobies. Sorry. I like boobs. May 5th, 2004, (laughs) Dennis sent another letter, this time to Bukake TV Studio. (laughs) That's not what it says. No. It's cake. Cake. K-A-K-E. It was a lengthy word puzzle consisting of columns of letters. And a few numbers mixed in. <laughs> Some of the words were fantasy, ah! realtor, serviceman, and telephone. The FBI verified that it came from BTK, but couldn't make any particular sense out of the puzzle. June 9, 2004, Dennis left a package taped to a stop sign at the corner of First and Kansas in the middle of the city. It contained disturbing documents such as a letter detailing the Otero family murders, and a sketch of a nude and bound female hanging by a rope. The sketch was labeled, Sexual Thrill is My Bill. (laughs) (laughs) And is said to have depicted Josephine Otero. Also enclosed was a 13-chapter list of a proposed book entitled, The BTK Story. Chapter 1. A serial killer is born. <laughs> July 17th, a package marked BTK was found in a book return at the Wichita Public Library downtown. It contained a worrisome message. I have oh. spotted a female that I think lives alone and or is spotted is a spotted latchkey kid. Just in case y'all don't know what that is, that's like when you have to go home by yourself with and let yourself in and all of that. That's a latchkey kid. Anyways, <laughs> just got to work out of the detail. Just got to work out the details. I'm much older, not feeble, now, and have to condition myself carefully. Also, my thinking process is not as sharp as it used to be. I think fall or winter would be just about right for that hit. Got to do it this year or next. Time is running out for me. (laughs) 
just like, yeah. I see that one. Looks mm. like a good one. She's I'm right old, for though. the picking. I'm really old and I'm running out of time. <laughs> and, you know, apparently fall or winter is the perfect time for a murder. <laughs> so, you know, keep that in mind. Uh, despite public pressure, the police refused to release many details of the packages from June on. They feared that hearing these things could provoke the BTK into a killing frenzy. On October 22nd, 2004, a, vani- a, a manila envelope. <laughs> a vanilla envelope. <laughs> I mean, it could have tasted like vanilla. I don't know. Uh, but a manila envelope was found by a UPS worker with BTK field grams written on it. It contained disturbing images of terror and bondage with children pasted onto them. Oh, no. It also contained a poem called Death to Landwehr, referring to the head of the BTK investigation, Lieutenant Ken Landwehr. There was also what BTK claimed was his autobiography, (laughs) which was almost all false. He wrote that he was born in 1939. False. Uh, His father died in the war. False. And his mother dated a railroad detective. False. (laughs) The police reviewed, or I'm sorry, the police released the autobiography to the public a few weeks later. And they were actually following the FBI's advice. They told him to keep the killer communicating. Don't offend him publicly. Don't overexcite him into killing more. Just keep him communicating until he makes a mistake. Over the course of the investigation, police would take roughly 1,300 DNA swabs from men searching for a match to the BTK semen left at the crime scenes. On December 8th, Dennis made a series of phone calls to a number of companies, including Bukake TV, and he was attempting to tell them the location of a package he left for authorities. When he introduced himself as BTK, everyone thought it was a prank and hung up on him. I would too. I don't know. I think I would listen. And then I would be freaking out about it. I'd be like, hey, you want to meet for a drink? (laughs) December 14th, the sixth drop was found. A man was walking through Murdoch Park at night and noticed a package wrapped in plastic leaning against a tree. He took it home and opened it. What? Inside was a PJ doll. The doll had a plastic bag tied over the head. Its hands were tied behind the back and its feet were bound together. He probably thought there would be like money or cocaine. Yeah. Tied to the feet was the actual driver's license of Nancy Fox. January 8, 2005, Dennis left a special case cereal box marked BTK and bomb in the bed <laughs> of a pickup truck parked at a Home Depot. The truck belonged to one of the employees. He thought it was trash, so he threw it away at home. <laughs> Many days later, he realized the significance of the box and called the police to retrieve it. <laughs> Surveillance footage of the parking lot showed a black Jeep Cher- Cherokee leaving the box. The image was too far away and blurry for identification. The box included a two-page document titled Boom and, af- and a document titled Comication. Comication. Yes, it was misspelled. <laughs> uh, Boom describes the BTK layer, a three-story house with an elevator. Right. The mm-hmm. house also had a room, a kill room, named 
BTK's DTPG and bondage room. DTPG means death to pretty girl. Comication asked, can I communicate with floppy and not be traced to a computer? Interesting. <laughs> the author requested that law enforcement, quote, be honest. <laughs> be honest, you guys. Check, be honest. Check yes or no if you like me. <laughs> I would write, oh, footsies. He told the law enforcement to run an advertisement, an advertisement. Advertisement. Under miscellaneous section 494 in the newspaper. The message, message should read, Rex, it will be okay if a floppy cannot be traced. <laughs> the Wichita Police Department ran the ad. So, he had a lot of respect for police, and he kind of wanted their, like, uh, he wanted to be buddies with them. And so he kind of thought, like, hey, if I'm opening up, like, they'll be honest with me. You know, they they respect me, which was stupid, but whatever. Uh, January 25th, 2005, a post-toasties box was discovered. <laughs> um, it contained a doll with a rope around its neck um, that had been tied to a plumbing fixture simulating the hanging of Josephine Otero. February 3rd, 2005, Dennis sent a postcard to KAKE-TV using the name Hap Cakeman, which apparently was like an old personality of the TV station or something. Mm -hmm. And the postcard thanked the news teams for their, quote, effort and informed the police department that he received the newspaper tip. The author promised a test run soon. February 16th, 2005, a package was sent to KSAS-TV, which was the Fox affiliate in Wichita. It contained a letter, a piece of jewelry, and a purple floppy disk, referred to as Test Floppy for WPD Review. Oh my god. Detective Robert Stone performed a forensic examination of the disk. In the properties section of the document, he located the words Christ Lutheran Church, and notice that the document was last modified by Dennis. Rut row. Real quick internet search determined that Dennis Rader was president of the church council at Christ Lutheran. So they had their suspect. <laughs> Police drove by Rader's house and saw a black Jeep Cherokee, the same type of vehicle seen in the Home Depot surveillance footage. It was strong circumstantial evidence, but they needed more direct evidence to detain him. So he was placed under surveillance. Meanwhile, a subpoena was secretly obtained for a DNA sample of his daughter from her medical records. This part kind of upsets me. So they tested a pap smear that was taken from Carrie at the Kansas State University Medical Clinic. She didn't even know. Like, they got a subpoena and just took her pap smear. So they never even tested it for, like, real testing? Like, huh? pap smear testing? I don't know. Because I'd be fucking mad if I had to do that yeah. shit again. Those specs hurt. They do. Uh, the test showed a familial, familial match 
between the pap smear and the DNA obtained from the crime scenes. This, combined with other evidence, was enough for police to arrest Dennis. And contrary to early media reports, Carrie never suspected her father, nor did she turn him in. In fact, she didn't even know until later that her DNA had been used to solve the case. At approximately 12.15 p.m. on February 25, 2005, Dennis Rader was taken into custody. He was going home for his lunch break when he realized he was surrounded by police. <laughs> Detectives executed a search warrant for the oral swabs of Dennis. The oral. He joked, I make 4,001. What? Because they had swabbed so many people. Oh. During the investigation. So oh. he was like, what? I make 4,001? I get it. Okay. <laughs> Refer- <laughs> referring to the reports of the many individuals swabbed during the investigation. In the interrogation room, Dennis initially played dumb and avoided the subject. Once they confronted him with the traced floppy disk and the DNA match, he started talking. In fact, he would not shut up. In a stunning 30-hour confession... He rambled on about his crimes as if he were proud. Investigations <laughs> were feeding his ego. <laughs> ego. All along, pret- <laughs> pretending to be impressed to keep him talking. And he fell for it. <laughs> what a dingleberry. They fed his eagle. They fed his eagle. What do eagles eat? Mice. On February 28, <laughs> 2005, Dennis was charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. On May 3rd, the judge entered a plea of not guilty on Rager's behalf. On January 27th, on June 27th, his scheduled trial date, he changed his plea to guilty. He described the murders in detail and made no apologies. He was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences with a minimum of 175 years. Kansas didn't have the death penalty at this time, so there you go. <laughs> On August 19th, he moved to El Dorado Correctional Facility, where he was placed in solitary confinement for his own protection. He is allowed one hour of exercise per day and showers three times a week. Beginning in 2006, he could earn TV access, radio access, magazines, and other privileges for being a good noodle. Aw, good boy. Many of the victims' families filed lawsuits against Dennis seeking damages. There was little hope of recovering any monetary damages, but the idea was to prevent Dennis from profiting from his crimes in any way, such as selling a book, TV rights, blah, blah, blah. He remains in El Dorado Correctional Facility to this day and is not eligible for parole until February 26, 2180. (laughs) So I also read, I couldn't like confirm the exact terms of his confinement, I guess, but there were certain things that he was not allowed access to because they felt he would make it perverse. Uh So... <clears throat> I know like he used to get um catalogs like in the mail and he would make he would like cut out their heads and like draw binds on them and like gags on them and shit. 
So um, he couldn't, he wasn't allowed to get any like magazines or catalogs in the mail at, in prison. And there was just like a, a bunch of weird stuff that he couldn't like access when he was in prison or whatever. But I digress. You digest? I digest. So um, now it's time for our fun facts. I got a little squeaky on that. You got squeaky. <laughs> so the childhood house that he grew up in was at 4815 North Seneca in Wichita. And it actually remained in the Raider family possession until 2005 when it was sold. So that house is like still um, like up. You can still like buy that house. But the um, his house on Independence... Um, after he was put in prison, his wife was trying to sell the house. And so someone offered her like 30000 above what she was asking. And because they were like trying to help her out, you know? Yeah. And the victim's families were like, no, she shouldn't get that extra money. We should get it. And so in the end, I think the city ended up buying the house so that they could demolish it. Yeah, it was pretty sad. Um, I found his old phone number when he was arrested. Uh, haven't tried calling it. I'm sure it's... I know it's not his anymore, but... Um, if y'all want it, it's 816-744-8722. Thought that was kind of interesting. I wouldn't call it in case somebody else has that number. Yeah. But, like, if y'all want to Google it or something, you know, there it is. Um... There's a lot of uh, court documents that you can find online. So if you want to search it, it's the 18th Judicial District Court in Sedgwick County. Sedgwick. Sedgwick County. And the case number is 05CR-498. His daughter, Carrie, also wrote a book called A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. I've started reading it. Pretty damn interesting. Uh, in 2019 interview with ABC News, Carrie said that she still writes to her father and has now forgiven him, but she still struggles to reconcile him with the BTK killer. She said that her childhood seemed normal and they were just a normal American family. My favorite one is coming up right now. <laughs> Dennis had a nickname for his penis. Because why not? And you know what his nickname for his penis was? Sparky. <laughs> so when he got aroused, he would have Sparky big time. <laughs> just saying it like that, I can just imagine him like they're fapping it like, oh, Sparky big time. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, Stephen King wrote the novella A Good Marriage, which he said was inspired by Dennis Rader. And the Netflix show Mindhunter... Um, I'm sure all of you remember the ADT man. That was also based on Raider. And that's all we got, peeps. So with that, we shall say, stay creepy. Bye.